Good morning, MCBC Online. Thanks for joining us via YouTube. Uh, we're glad that you've made time for us this weekend. We're coming to the end of that series we've been working on that we titled, I Didn't Say That. And we've been looking at some of the sayings attributed or misattributed to Jesus or to the Bible, some things that might ring true, but when you dig a little bit deeper into them, can actually become a barricade in our understanding of who God is, of God's character character of God's actions in the past, of his desires for us in the future. I'd like to begin this morning with a prayer. We're going to begin and end with the same prayer. And this is actually a very ancient prayer. It traces its way all the way back to Jesus, to the days of Jesus. And it actually is called sometimes the Jesus prayer. And this is how it goes. It says, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, Have mercy on me, a sinner. I'm going to invite you to say that with me. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. The sting, of course, in the prayer is the last two words, uh, because really that's That's the story of me, not Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me for failing to actualize my full potential or have mercy on me because from time to time I've made some errors in judgment. No, I am a sinner, a a wrongdoer, a damage causer. I, I can be and have been in the past a moral fraud, and it's a humbling thing to say those words out loud, Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's counter, I think, to to a therapeutic culture that that wants to validate all that's good within us, and I think that's important. And And the Bible is very rich with a strong message of validation that says who you are is something worthy and noble and beautiful because you were created by God, you bear the image of God, but it also is sobering in its realistic assessment of what has happened to the image of God that resides in us because it gets distorted, it gets twisted up. And so as we've been looking through this series at the different sayings ascribed often to Jesus or to the Bible, we come this morning to, to the last one. And you've heard this said before, love the sinner, but hate the sin. Love the sinner, but hate the sin. And, and, you know, on the surface, it sounds like the kind of thing that Jesus probably might have said. It certainly sounds like something that if it doesn't actually find its place in the Bible, really ought to be there. It's a biblical-sounding thing. Sin is a bad thing. We ought to hate that. We're all sinners, and we're supposed to love each other. So love the sinner, hate the sin. Now, that saying is not actually in the Bible, or at least not in, in that way. And, and I think there might actually be a reason for it. And, and the reason we're not going to come to into the second half of the message. But what I'd like to do is take that saying in two parts. And we're going to deal with the second part first, with the hate the sin part first. And then we'll come back to the love the sinner part, which I think is sometimes where we get trapped. But let's start with the the second part of the saying, hate the sin. The, the writers of the Bible, all the way through its pages, they have a lot to say about sin. According to the Bible, how widespread is sin? Does anybody have any idea? Well, 
very widespread. In Romans, Paul says, all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. According to the writers of Scripture, how damaging is sin? Again, from Scripture, from Romans 6 and verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. It's, it's damaging to the very core of who we are. Again, according to the writers of Scripture, how seriously should we take the struggle that goes on in us between the better angels of our nature, if you like that expression, and the darker desires, the struggle against sin? Well, the writer of the book of James, he puts it like this. He says, come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. It's... uh, It's not a subject that the Bible likes to gloss over lightly. When you enter into the world of the Bible, you enter into another world, at least one that feels very foreign to ours. And it doesn't underestimate the moral weight of what it means to be a human being. Because for the writers of the Bible, sin is its cunning and it's baffling And it's terrifying, and it's just so destructive to human well-being. They have so many words to describe it. It's it's kind of like, you know, we we hear that in the Inuit language, there are all these different words to describe snow, because the Inuit world, of course, is covered in it. And for eyes that are tuned to it and trained for it, not all snow is the same. Well, in the Bible... There are a whole swath of words that are used to describe this part of the human condition. And I thought in order to understand it better, it might be helpful to run through some of the words. So here's a word. The first word that describes sin is best translated as kind of wandering off the path or drifting away. Just like you you take a wrong turn somewhere on the journey, and what happens You're lost. You wind up someplace you never thought you would be. Sin is like that. And then you look at your life in the moment and you ask, how did I get here? What happened in my life that I found myself in this part of town or trapped in this cul-de-sac? Sin is wandering off the path. Another image, a word used to describe the sin, means literally to miss the mark. And the image is is that of an archer, a bad archer, actually, an archer who misfires a lot. You don't want to be standing near the target if the one holding the bow and pointing the arrow has bad aim. Because misshot arrows, they can do a lot of damage. And it's the same way with sin. Sin means that sometimes I say things and I do things and I become things that I never wanted to be. I miss the mark. It's not what I was aiming for in my life, but somehow that's where the arrow lands. Sin is missing the mark. Here's another word. It's the word broken. Uh, When something's broken, a broken chair, a, a broken computer, that thing which is broken, which is beyond repair, 
It no longer really has a use. And sin does that to people. It convinces them that they are useless, that their life has become a throwaway commodity. There was a series on TV a number of years ago. I remember we we tried to get my father to watch it. He was a, a chemistry professor by nature. And this was about a chemistry professor who missed the mark, wandered off the path, and somehow wound up working alongside drug dealers using his knowledge to synthesize the product that, that they were making available in the criminal underworld. The series was called Breaking Bad. And you've heard of it. Don't pretend you haven't heard of it. And, and it struck me that, well, well, we live in a culture that doesn't embrace the word sin, that that language, which was very trendy and the, and the series which had an immense following and won all of these awards, that language has real resonance. What is sin? It's breaking badly. Here's another word. A word used to describe sin is the word blemished, like uh, like a blemished animal. In the Old Testament, when you were bringing an animal in tribute to God, you couldn't bring a blemished animal. One of the laws of adolescence, you'll remember this, is that uh, the bigger the date that is coming up on Saturday night, the bigger the pimple that is likely to appear right on the end of your nose. Or maybe that was just me who went through that experience. A blemish, a bad mark in the most visible place in your life. Sometimes in the Bible, actually about 200 different times, the Bible uses a word that means crooked, something that's bent or, or distorted, or, or, or it's no longer level, it's tilted off the axis. You remember famously, uh, a deposed U.S. president resigned in disgrace, and he said famously, I am not a crook. That's the language of sin. There is crookedness in all of us. Another word for sin is the word rebellion. It involves this sense of defiance. Defiance against God, defiance against parents, defiance in relationship, defiance against just the moral order of creation. Reminds me of one of those charming little preacher stories about a four-year-old whose mother said, you can ride your bike down as far as the sidewalk, but if you go further, if you ride further away, I'm going to catch you and turn you around and I'm going to give you a spanking. You can tell it's an old preacher's story because, well, we don't do that. True story, though, supposedly that strong-willed four-year-old stuck out her bottom and said, you better spank me now because I've got places to go. That's rebelliousness. And that's part of the language for sin. Many times in the Bible, the word translated as sin refers to indebtedness. We owe a debt because whether it's sinning against God or another person, it always comes at a price. And it's a price that has to be paid. And those of you who have, have to sum up the moral courage to forgive another person who's wronged you know that it costs you something. There is an, an indebtedness to sinning. There's also in the Bible the language of, of going astray, of, of swerving. Uh, maybe picture somebody who's given into drunkenness and they're, and they're tipsy and they're 
tilting back and forward as they walk, or maybe in our day, even more dangerously, they get behind the wheel when they're not safe to drive, and they're placing somebody else's life, not just their own, in jeopardy, going astray. Sometimes sin is called lawlessness. Uh, To engage in it, we have to somehow rationalize, at least in the moment, that all of those ethical principles, all those rules and laws, all that sense of what's right and wrong, that it doesn't apply to me in the moment. Related to that, maybe, is the the notion of trespassing, because we're violating boundaries. How much, as you think about sin, how much of it involves going to places we ought not to go? whether that's emotional places, addictive places, relational places, physical places, or spiritual places. I'm going where I I ought not to go, and yet my mind is justifying why it's okay for me to go. And all the time it's doing that, there's this little voice crying out, said, you know, you know that you ought not to trespass into that place. The minister parks his car in a no-parking zone because he's running short of time. He can't find any space at one of the metered spots. So he writes a note. He leaves it on his windshield and says, I've circled the block ten times, and if I don't park here now, I'm going to miss my appointment. Then he writes in quote, forgive us our trespasses. When he returns, he finds a parking ticket along with a note that says, Sir, I have circled this block for ten years. If I don't give you a ticket... I will lose my job. And then in quotes, he writes, lead us not into temptation. Forgive us our trespasses. The language is embedded there right in the Lord's Prayer. One of the most important words for sin is the word impurity. James says in James chapter 4, verse 8, purify your heart. Paul writes to Timothy, he says, do not share in the sins of others, but keep yourself pure. And maybe most famously, Jesus himself says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. That word purity, I, I know sometimes it, it sounds, it feels old-fashioned. Fa- old it, it even feels a little bit oppressive. And to be honest, there have been times in the history of the church when that word purity has been used in very strange and very oppressive ways, particularly for women. And so I want to spend a little bit of time on it because the notion of purity at its core, what it really means is that there is a way that things are supposed to be when they are right and whole and wholesome and good. Let me just give you a real practical example. It's something that we all care about, or I think most of us care about. Let's talk for a second about food. We have agencies that set standards of purity for our food. I'm not going to cite the Canadian agencies because if I do, you're going to get apprehensive. I'm going to cite the FDA, the Federal Drug and Food Administration in the U.S., because uh, then we can dismiss it thinking, well, that's them and we're better. (laughs) But we're probably not. The FDA raises up standards for what constitutes purity in what's allowed in the food products that we consume. Let me give you some examples. Do you eat apple butter? Any of you, uh, 
we're fans in our house, apple butter. According to the FDA, apple butter is considered to be pure if it has less than five rodent hairs, rodent hairs per 100 grams, or if it averages five or less insects, not counting aphids, which I guess don't matter so much to the FDA. Otherwise, you can go slap it right on your bagel if it has three or four rodent hairs or, or a few little insects. Mushrooms. Mushrooms cannot be sold if there's an average of 20 or more maggots on any size above 15 grams. 19 maggots, that's okay. If there's more than 13 insect heads per 100 grams of fig paste, the FDA will make you toss it. 12 or less? <laughs> that's fine. And apparently other parts of the insect are okay. It's just the heads we're worried about. We don't want to have their beady little eyes staring back up at us from the top of our bagel. Hot dogs? Boy, you don't want to know. If they took all the impurities out of a hot dog, there would be no hot dog. The language of purity. The language of purity reminds us of something that we all know. That there is a way things ought to be. And that's true of fig paste and hot dogs. But it's even more true of human character. And sin is the erosion of that. And what it means is that we end up polluting not just the food chain, not just the political world, but polluting our own character, polluting the moral world around us. And we live in a moral and a spiritual ecosystem, just as we do in a biological ecosystem. We all affect it, and we're all affected by it. So what really happens is that sin winds up enslaving and degrading us. That's what impurity is. Sin enslaves and degrades and it deadens, and it depresses. And it's just, it's important to be aware of that. Because we shy away from conversation about sin, but boy, do we know the consequences of it. Sometimes if you, if you hang around churches long enough, you get the sense that people are primarily concerned about avoiding punishment for sin. Here's how to keep from being punished for your sins. But actually, what the Bible is more about is finding freedom from the power of sin, from the corrosive, toxic effects of sin in a human life, in human relationships, in, in the moral world. Sometimes people around churches will, will wonder about things like, how much sin can there be in my life, in a person's life, before they have to start worry, worrying? What's the acceptable zone of behavior in, in which God can still act? And we, and we toss out those questions like, is this too much for God to forgive? Or does this come too late in a life? Or what happens if a person comes to God, but then they pack in this much bad stuff? Does God still forgive? Is there a limit to impurity before the spiritual divine equivalent of the FDA tosses out the product? It's a little bit like asking a question like, how much cancer should I let build up in my body before I do something about it? The problem with sin isn't, isn't so much or isn't simply that we're going to get in trouble for it. Sin is its own punishment at its very core. So what sin 
should I hate? Remember, we're looking at that expression, love the sinner, hate the sin. What sin should I hate? You know, sometimes people will defend that saying, love the sinner, hate the sin, by pointing to a verse from Romans, where, where Paul offers an amazing set of words. Romans twelve nine says this, love must be sincere. I mean, you can work on that your whole life. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. But if you read the full passage, you cannot avoid the fact that what Paul is pointing to is hating not the sin that we see out there, but the sin that's corroding us in here. He's saying, I, I need to develop just a, a healthy sense of hatred and coldness for my own greed and my own self-centeredness and anything that would keep me from, from blossoming from being able to love with the sincerity and depth of character that God has in mind for us. And so what I'd like to do is take a few moments as a pastor, as a friend, as a fellow struggler and journeyman walking down the road of discipleship with Jesus. I want us to spend just a few minutes thinking through those issues in our own lives. And then we're going to stop and we're going to celebrate communion. We're going to do it in the middle of the message. So if you need to have your communion elements at hand, uh, maybe make sure that they're close by. We're going to come to them in just a couple of minutes. But I want to talk to you as a pastor because I've watched too many marriages end in coldness and in resentment and pain when they could have been otherwise. I want to talk to you because I've seen too many young people, and honestly not so young people, who in the middle of this hypersexualized culture are making decisions that are about to shatter a part of their own lives, and, and they are writing checks with their body that their hearts cannot cash. I've seen too many family members grow cold to each other and become distant, and that distance goes on for weeks and months and sometimes years for reasons that are so stupid that they can't even remember them anymore. We've all seen nations torn apart, things like racial injustice. We're watching it happen in our own nation around our indigenous peoples. We've seen nations divided by materialism and division and suspicion, when words and deeds and gestures of, of forgiveness and contrition and humility, they might have healed it, but the words never get spoken. I've watched parents idolize work at the expense of their children. I've watched people get consumed by more and more and more while we live in a world where millions of people still languish in poverty every day. And, and we could be part of the solution. We could change a life for somebody. I've seen women demeaned by men who cover it up in soul-destroying ways, often using the guise and the language of religion to do it. I've seen lives destroyed and what should be a wonderful relationship. And then there's gossip that tears apart relationship and it all comes crumbling down. I've seen workplaces, and you all have, where fear or incompetence or power or intimidation turns the people who work there into shadows of their full self. 
and I've seen what pride and ego and deceptiveness can do in my own life. So guess what I want to do this weekend is to ask every one of us, part of what it means to be a church is to be able to do this for each other. I want to ask every one of us to surrender some part of the story of who you are to God and ask ask God to be at work in these moments and to convict you of that place in your life that needs healing. A balm where sin has been corroding a part of your life, a healing balm. Any attitude, any any habit, any words, anything that you've you've done where sin has a toehold in your life, I'm going to ask you for for just a moment to close your eyes and offer that to God. And with your eyes closed, if you've wronged somebody, Let me invite you to resolve right now that this week that you'll go to that person or you'll write to that person or you'll call that person and you'll take the first step of putting it right again. Folks, the the relief of forgiveness, the promise of a new start, of a cleansed conscience, of a God-honoring life, They're only ever one honest prayer away. And just so that we would never forget it, Jesus instituted a celebration for his people. And he invited them. He said, whenever you gather together, I want you to remember what it means that I was here with you. Remember what I taught. Remember how I lived. But more importantly, Remember how I died and why I died and what I died for. I am the God of fresh new beginnings. Forgiveness is only a prayer away. In order to enshrine that reminder in a way that had, had real tactile memory to it, he took bread Well, he was gathered around a table with his own followers, and he broke it. Remember, sin is brokenness. He broke it saying, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he took a cup of wine. And if sin is brokenness, he offered the prescription, the healing measure This cup, he said, represents a new covenant, one made possible through the shedding of my blood, this covenant, this promise, which renews the faithfulness of the forgiving God and his power at work in your life, this covenant made possible through the shedding of my blood. And as often as you eat this bread and you drink from this cup, you're proclaiming the power of of my death until I come again. What's that power? The power to forgive, the power to renew, the power to heal, the victorious power over all of the consequences of sin, even its greatest, even death itself. All of that power unleashed in the life of 
of a person who musters up the courage to voice just one honest prayer. Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Let me invite you in your homes. If you're there by yourself, I want you to know you're not by yourself. The family of God are around you. We are part of that great cloud of witnesses that surround you. If if you have company around you in the room, maybe you want to serve each other, but let me invite all of you to hold that bread in your hands, to feel it, and as you feel the weight of the bread, to feel the greater weight of the promise. This is my body, broken for you. And let's eat together. And then as you hold the cup, remember again the words of Jesus, this cup is a new covenant made possible through the shedding of my blood. The covenant is your relationship with a merciful, faithful, and loving God. As you drink, drink with gratitude, drink with joy, because the toehold that sin once had in your life, it need not have again. Let's drink together. After they had shared bread and wine, the disciples joined Jesus in a time of worship and they sang. And we're going to do that in just a few minutes. But I want to come back to the first part of that saying that is the title of our message. If the problem is the power of sin and, and if the rescue is here in bread and wine, which point to the, to the saving power of Jesus... If that addresses the second part of the saying about the sin and hating the sin, what do we do the first part? Love the sinner. Because that sure sounds like something that Jesus would say. Jesus loved everybody. Jesus was called the friend of sinners. That was intended, by the way, as an insult. But he wore it like a badge of honor. He got in trouble for it all the time. It's more or less, when you think about it, what got him killed because he, he hung with the wrong people and he offended the people in power. This is what Paul wrote in, in 1 Timothy. He said, this saying is reliable. It deserves full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And they flocked to him. He was like a sin magnet. Now, not that that sin, it was happening in his own life, but, but people who felt the weight of sin were drawn to him. And yet, and yet, Jesus never says, love the sinner. He says, love your neighbor. He says, love your enemy. He says, love one another. But never once does he actually say, love sinners. Why not? I mean, of course, Saying love your neighbor, I mean, that, that includes everybody who we may cross paths with. And just to make it clear, Jesus said, love each other. 
And if we're all sinners, then you could extrapolate it out and said that must be what he meant. But, but I have a feeling that one of the reasons Jesus doesn't use that language of love the sinner is because immediately followers of Jesus would start looking for sinners to love and start dividing the world into sinners. And then what's the other group? What should we call the other category? Uh, Good, upstanding, right thinking, correct ideology or or correct correct political party or, or denomination or sexuality, correct values, whatever. People like me. And then we get a little bit puffed up. We say, hey, come look at me loving those sinners. It, it's so interesting. You know, God, God sends Jesus to the world and Jesus spends the majority of his time hanging out with sinners. But he never actually says, I love you, but I hate your sin. He communicates love in profound ways and he condemns sin in very telling ways. But he never strings those things together. Instead, he talks a lot about God's mercy and God's grace and God's acceptance and God's forgiveness. And he says, I love you. Why don't you get a fresh new start in life? That's the language of repentance or being born again. I love you. I love you so much that I'm going to invite you to start again and I'm going to make that possible. In fact, about the only time in the gospel where you see Jesus really expressing what looks like righteous anger, even rage and hatred for sin, is when he encounters the sin of loveless, judgmental spirits in the lives of people, usually leaders, usually religious leaders, spiritual experts, spiritually mature people, or so they thought who in fact had very little love in them. In one of his most famous stories, Jesus talks about this. This is in in Luke chapter 18, in verse 9. In Luke 18, verse 9, he says, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. Those who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. To them, he spoke a parable. And that parable is recorded in Luke in chapter 18. And it depicts a proud religious Pharisee, one of those spiritual experts and leaders, who holds his head aloft and thumps his chest and says, God, I thank you that I am not like that guy over there, a sinner. And over there in the corner, tax collector with with a controversial past, quietly praying, feeling the shame and weight of his own life and the accumulation of his poor decisions. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And by the way, that's the origin of the Jesus prayer. It starts 2,000 years ago. It starts with that story. It's with that, that sinful tax collector who, to the shock of the crowd, out of his own brokenness and neediness and humiliation, is the hero 
of Jesus' story. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. You know, Jesus says, judge not. And I think the reason he says it is because religious people have a hard time not judging. It's just, it's a weird thing about us. I give up doing bad things, whatever those are, drinking, smoking, swearing, bad movies. We've had different lists through the years. I start cultivating good things, praying, reading the Bible, exercising, giving generously, volunteering. That's all good stuff to do. But then this is the way that the evil one gets a foothold in our lives, that sin wreaks havoc with us. Very next, very often the next thought in my mind is, what's the matter with other people in the church? How come they're not doing that? How come they're not giving up those things I've given up? How come they're not taking up those things that I'm taking up? Why can't you do what I do? Why can't you be a little bit more like me? I love you because uh, I love the sinners. But I hate the sin. Part of the problem with the saying is that when we say love the sinners, what we're often doing is focusing the attention out there and not in here. And whenever we do that, we run the risk. And, and it's, a, it's a really terrible risk because we see it played out again and again and again. We run the risk of hypocrisy and judgmentalism, and lovelessness. And it springs up in the lives of the very people who are trying so hard to cultivate virtue. I think I'm doing good. And yet this weed comes up in the middle of our lives and it strangles out the good that's going on because love, which is the first commandment, can't exist with all that other junk. You know, it's interesting in our day, Christians, more and more, we lament the lack of Christian power and influence that maybe we once had in politics and society and culture. We talk about the loss of moral absolutes and, and theological orthodoxy. But realize this, the Pharisees in the New Testament were committed to moral absolutes and theological orthodoxy. And they weren't bringing in paradise in their day. An awful lot of church leaders in the Middle Ages who had an awful lot of power were committed to moral absolutes and theological orthodoxy, but they didn't usher in orthodoxy in paradise. It was the Dark Ages. In Geneva, in John Calvin's day, Philip Yancey writes about this in one of his books. In his day, church attendance was compulsory. It was the law. If you didn't go to church on Sunday, you got arrested in Geneva. And here are the things that were forbidden in the pursuit of moral correctness and orthodoxy. Feasting, dancing, singing, pictures, statues, church bells, organs, wearing rouge or jewelry or lace, gambling, playing cards, or naming children after anyone other than figures in the Bible. Those were all forbidden in Geneva. Don't you wish you lived in the great old days when the church had influence in the world? The father in Geneva who christened his son Claude, not a name found in the Bible, spent four days in jail. And a woman, I'm not making this up, a woman whose hairdo reached an immoral height, not sure what that is, how high it has to go, an immoral height, 
wound up in prison as well. A child who struck his parents was beheaded in Geneva. John Calvin's own stepson and daughter-in-law were caught in sexual misconduct and beheaded. When the church becomes the world's moral police, we have the power now, we'll pass the laws now, it generally has failed to usher in the kind of paradise we imagine would follow. I guess what I'm suggesting is that maybe the world doesn't need more Christians pointing out what everyone else is doing wrong. At the end of Jesus' story about the Pharisees, here's what Jesus says in Luke 14, verse 11. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And for those who humble themselves... They will be lifted up. They will be exalted. I mean, it's just, it's weird, isn't it? The very fact that I believe there is such a thing as sin and that we ought to strive against it can create this idea or this illusion that I am better than the secularists or or the revivalists or or the relativists or the agnostics or non-believers who are out there, whoever it is. But here's the point. It's hard to raise up people who are righteous without making them self-righteous. I mean, it's easy. It's so terribly easy. For those of us who are comfortable using the word sin to take pride in ourselves and our own correct beliefs, and it's so easy, so so terribly easy for people like me to see sin out there and miss sin in here and damage folks in the process and end up not loving the sinner, not being the person that, that I was saved to be. It's so easy to miss grace. Let's, let's not miss grace. We humble ourselves. And just to avoid the stream of emails that will probably come this week anyway. Of course I believe there's sin out there. There's massive amounts of sin out there. How much sin is there in, in the GTA? My goodness, it's, it's sinapalooza out there. Arrogance, greed, misuse of power, envy, promiscuity, hedonism. Wow, the, the list goes on. But let's be honest, how much sin is there in here, in the church? Oh, my goodness. Guess what? It's Sinapalooza in here, too. I know I get the data on it every week because of my job. How much sin is there in here? How much sin is there here in my own heart? Only God knows fully. But there's at least enough in there to keep Jesus busy for the next few decades, even if he had nothing else to do. So let's hate the sin that's in here. Because it keeps us from being the people that God needs us to be out there. And let's be the world's leading experts. Not so much in pointing out the sin in other people, but in bringing our own sin to God and laying it before him, taking it to the cross, and finding ourselves healed and restored. We ask for his help. 
We ask for freedom from the power of sin in our lives. And we humble ourselves. We pray, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner.